As always, any time during the worship set, if you need to sit, uh, please feel free to do that. Let's continue in this uh, rich spirit of prayer. I want to read from Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him lack nothing. The lions may grow weak and hungry, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. Your cry this morning at the altar and in your seat. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them and delivers them from all their troubles. Whatever your troubles are today, he delivers you. He will. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. If that's you today, embrace that truth, that promise. Righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. He protects all his bones. Not one of them will be broken. Lord, thank you for those promises physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. You, you promise to be our deliverer and rescue us. Those who are suffering in body this morning, we pray for a deliverance from them, a healing for them, healing from COVID. If that's what they're dealing with or the after effects or remnants of it, be close to everyone. And we lift up our friend Bobby Hare with his heart cath tomorrow. Be with the doctors who are performing this procedure. We pray that it will go well and he will have a good recovery. Lord, we thank you for new ministries forming at our church, and we give them to you and those who you've called to, to lead these, as we'll be hearing more about them. Lord, we pray that you will establish them and the leaders and those that are helping, that they will minister to those and, and people will be helped. We think of those who are persecuted as Christians around the world, and particularly Afghanistan. Is that still a place where Christians are being sorely tried for their faith? Give them strength, Lord, this day and deliver them from their oppressors. Lord, I'm impressed with the Canadian truckers and that movement. We pray the, the movement for liberty and freedom would spread across this world to end unfair government mandates and more authoritarianism. In governments, they want to oppress people and control people. We pray that your word would be free and liberate people around this world, that the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ would go far and wide, deliver and heal and save. And Lord, we pray your blessing and anointing on the message and our sharing the Lord's Supper together in Jesus name. Amen. And if the children would come up at this time. It's really fun to hear their conversations up here this morning. 
I love these children. They are so wonderful. Thank you, Lord, for the blessing of these children. We can learn so much from them. In fact, your word tells us to be like children. That way we can receive the kingdom of heaven. Bless them, and I pray that they will receive of you through their teacher today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Uh, Last week in my sermon, I talked about application of the word, and, and I think I got a little carried away, and I said I would do cartwheels. If you said that, you know, you would apply the word. And uh, so at least two or three people talked to me at the back door of a way that they've been applying the word of God. So to true to my word, I have to do three cartwheels this morning. But I could tell you if I attempted one, I would really hurt myself. I was able I was not able to do those things at age 18, much less my age now. So I thought in place of cartwheels, I would do three jumping jacks. And so I'm willing to do this for about a month. Okay, so if you share with me, you know, during the week, email me, call me, write me, send me back door. Hey, I'm applying God's word and this is what I'm doing. I'll keep a tally of those in the next Sunday morning. I'll do that many jumping jacks. So if I have like a hundred of you say that, I'll probably have to change that again. But so for the morning, I'm going to do my three jumping jacks. Okay. All right. Beautiful. Okay. Amen. Yes. Okay. I want to give you a hypothetical situation this morning. I want you to picture a mid-sized church. You, you attend this church. And some really good things are happening in your church. Your chief concern is a lack of money. The budget's in the red. Things are really tight. And you're ushering today, and you, you look out the door, window door, and you see a Jaguar pull in. You recognize this couple, it's the Goldfingers. The mister has a full head of white hair. He has an Armani suit on and a Rolex watch. The wife has an expensive gown and a Gucci purse and a big rock on her finger. They're loaded. You've got to admit, you're a little excited that they're attending your church today, and they just might be the answer to your financial prayers. But then you see another car pull in, a rusty Dodge Dart, and the retreads step out of the car. They buy their clothes at the local thrift store. So do I. They have body odor. You have to admit, you're not that excited that they're visiting your church today. Both couples are standing at the back. You see two empty seats up front on the aisle. The perfect place to leave the gold fingers in where they could make a grand entrance. So you stick out your arm for Mrs. Goldfinger. And who latches on? Mrs. Retread. You put them in the balcony. You hurry back for the gold fingers and you look around and they're gone. You walk out in the foyer, look out the door, and you see them driving away. You see, they stood at the back, and they were sizing up your congregation. And they looked, and they thought, I don't think we could enhance our reputation in the community here at this church. You sit down. The pastor announces the text, and he's preaching on James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. My brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith 
in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and act. As those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So this hypothetical situation reminds me of a David Jeremiah story that is a true story. A Bel Air Presbyterian church in Los Angeles where Governor Ronald Reagan And his wife, Nancy, attended. They had their seats in that congregation that they always sat. But they were late this one Sunday and someone sat in their seats. Two hippie types. And so when the usher who escorts the Reagans to their seat went up to those boys and told them they had to move. And then the Reagans sat down. Well, the pastor saw that. And said to that usher after the service, I better never see that again. That's right, Pastor. And I know that wouldn't happen in our church because our ushers are the best. Look at verse one where it says, my brothers. So this isn't written to the world here. This is written to Christians, to the Jewish Christians to whom James is writing. But it speaks to us today. He chides them for partiality, for being snobs. What's a snob? Someone who turns their nose up and their eyes down. Literally, the word means is a compound Greek word means to receive and to face. So it means to receive another's face to go by face value, to look on outward appearances only and Thinking you're better than someone else by those outward appearances. Life magazine a long time ago did an interesting pictorial. 500 people were in the picture from wealthy CEOs to homeless people. They were all wearing towels. And you couldn't tell who was who. 
So what areas in our culture, hopefully not in our churches, do we show favoritism? The first is appearance. Studies have shown that beautiful people get more opportunities. Taller men are promoted more than their shorter counterparts. And that even teachers tend to treat cute, well-behaved, well-dressed children better. You guys remember the Beverly Hillbillies, that show? Yeah, Jed Clampett. I met once a real-life Jed Clampett in Canton, Ohio, my hometown. His name was Mr. Belden. He was the president of a family-owned business who, for generations, called Belden Brick Company of Canton. And they, and they were very wealthy. Mr. Belden also was named for the Belden Village Mall. Some of you who have been to Canton and know the Belden Village Mall. I think he owned the land where that mall was developed. Mr. Belden always wore jeans, a flannel shirt, a cowboy hat, and drove an old rusty pickup truck. You would never know he was a multimillionaire. We were vacationing once in Wisconsin, and so I had a seminary buddy that I graduated with who was pastoring a church in Wisconsin. So we went to his church, and I had a brown beard then, and my seminary friend said, I'm not going to introduce you to one particular man in our church as a pastor. And I said, why not? And, and he said, because you have a beard. He hates beards. He says they're sinful. And I said, wow, all the pictures I've seen of Jesus. And, you know, from what I understand of that time period in cult, Jewish culture, where most everybody had a beard. He said, I know I told him that Jesus had a beard. And he said, well, you're no Jesus. So don't we all judge people by their appearance? We see that person all tattooed up and with a bunch of piercings. And, you know, we're we're making evaluations and judgments on them by their appearance. Now, the next area is race. And I, I want to say preface it by saying, I think we've made progress in this country. In race relationships. And I think it's wrong to use race as a means of dividing people, as I think the CRT movement is trying to do. So my examples are a little bit older, but I think they make the point. African-American man was visiting a white congregation and he did not feel very welcomed in the service. And so he called the pastor Midweek expressed that and the pastor said, well, maybe you should just pray about if you should be a part of our church or not. And he saw the man about six weeks later in the grocery store and said, did you pray about whether you should come to our church or not? And he said, yeah, I did. And the Lord told me, don't worry about trying to get into that church. I've been trying to get into that church for years, too, and they won't let me in either. Yeah. True story here. William Seymour was an evangelist and a revivalist around the turn of the 20th century. And he heard about a great revival that was going on in Kansas, 1901. So he went to that church, but they wouldn't let him inside. So he sat outside by the window, took in everything that was happening, traveled to Los Angeles and began preaching there. And a great revival broke out under his ministry, the Azusa Street Revival. Another true story, Mahatma Gandhi was studying in London 
And a friend, white friend of his from class was going to be a guest speaker in a particular church in London. And so he wanted to come and hear his friend preach. And he did. But they would not allow him to come inside because of his dark skin. He wanted to become a Christian. Can you imagine that? Gandhi wanted to become a Christian. That as he read the Sermon on the Mount, he thought this would be perfect for India. This would change my country. But here's what he said after that experience. If Christians practice a caste system, I will remain a Hindu. Another area of discrimination is age. You're too young. You're too old. How about status? Winners, losers. Heroes, zeros. We often size people up by their occupation. I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I sit on a park bench and drink all day. Probably not going to be revered for his status. Wealth. This is the area that James is covering here in our text. In verses two to three, we see a man with a Roman toga and gold rings on his finger. Literally the gold fingered one reminded me of the James Bond villain. This was a Roman upper class person. People in that day and culture rented rings and jewelry to impress others that they sewed diamonds and and other jewelry on their clothing to dazzle. So why was the usher's attitude wrong at the beginning of the message? James gives us three reasons why his attitude was wrong. The first is it's inconsistent with God's nature. In verse four, James says, you've made distinctions and become judges. Same Greek word there for those two different words. God doesn't play favorites. If God did, it would be the down and out that he favors. But only God is capable of making a correct judgment on someone else. We're not capable. So we shouldn't show favoritism because unlike God, who knows all about that person, we're just getting a glance at their outward appearance. As it says, God looks on the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. We're not capable of judging others. Secondly, James says in verses five through seven, it doesn't make sense. Why would you do that? Why would you coddle the rich? They're proud already and don't believe they need God. The poor, on the other hand, are usually meek and humble and recognize their need for God. Matthew 5, 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And the poor in spirit and the poor are usually the same person. Luke 6, 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, the Bible is clear on poverty is not the requirement to get into heaven. Trust in Christ's finished work on the cross is. But the rich tend to. Think of themselves as being especially blessed by God over somebody else who's poor. That God has obviously favored me over them, probably because I'm such a great guy. Now, the rich can be saved, but even Jesus said it's harder because they tend to trust in their riches as equivalent with God's favor. So they can do anything they want. Remember, your self-worth is not based on your net worth. The rich were causing James's congregation trouble. 
They were dragging them into court and suing them. Why are you trying to impress the people who are taking your land? Then they used the courts against the poor. They bought justice with bribes. You know, the symbol of justice is the lady that's blindfolded holding the scales, right? She's blindfolded because she's not supposed to see what you look like or what you talk like. She's supposed to render impartial justice, fair and square. Doesn't matter who you are or how much money you have. But if you're rich enough, you bribe judges. We don't always like the poor because they always have needs. They're always asking us for money. They're always borrowing our stuff and not returning it. They steal. They break stuff. But aren't the rich high need too? Aren't they demanding and bossy and arrogant? James says it's stupid to favor the rich because in the end they're going to take advantage of you like rich globalists always do. Who want a great reset and want governments to take away your rights. We should fear rich legalists, rich elitists a lot more than we do a virus. Number three, it violates love. Verses 8 through 11. The main reason to shun favoritism is it's unloving. It violates the royal law, the most important command. Jesus said in Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. How we love others shows how we love God. First John 4:20. If anyone says I love God but hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And then James uses an example from the Ten Commandments, and he picks two, adultery and murder. How many laws does it take to become a lawbreaker if you break one? Just one. So here's a situation. I come to your house and I say, hey, I like you, so I won't sleep with your wife. But if you tick me off, I'm going to kill you. Would you congratulate me for not being an adulterer? You can't say, well, you're a really good guy. You've never committed adultery and you've only killed a few people. See, so we, we can't feel OK about any sin we commit because it violates the law of love. And then James concludes this section in verses 12 and 13 by saying you'll be judged on the basis of how you judge others. We don't like the thought of God judging us. But he's going to. Romans 14:10 says, why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We'll all stand before the Bema. So the sin of judging others prompted Paul to write that to remind the Roman Christians that he was writing to that we're all going to stand before God someday. And the playing field is going to be level then. But there's hope. 
James gives us that little bit of hope, the gospel here at the end. He says, if you show mercy, mercy will be shown to you. Anyone in here this morning want God to judge them as strictly as possible on that judgment day? I don't think so. I don't think we want strict judgment. I think we all want mercy. So be merciful. Since James used a church illustration in this text, I thought I would close by way of application using a church example. How about our church or any church, any Bible believing evangelical church? How about a visitor comes to our church for the first time or again, any church? They, they come motivated by a need. That need is to connect with God, that they bring their hurts, their questions, their apprehensions. They're they're looking for answers. They're looking for love. And when they find that, they return. And when they return, they find God. What if you were visiting a Buddhist temple, a mosque or a synagogue for the first time? How would you feel? I imagine you feel apprehensive and fearful and insecure. What would you need at that moment? Well, a friend would be nice or at least something that some information that tells you what's going to happen next. So do you suppose a first time visitor to our church or any church feels similar to that? They don't know what's going on, what's going to happen. How many times am I going to have to stand up? Am I going to have to say anything? All right. Research was done. That asks, why do people stop shopping at a particular store? I thought the results here were interesting. One percent die. Well, that's a pretty good reason to stop shopping at your store. Not much you can do about that. Three percent move away. Again, what can you do if you're the merchant? That's a good reason. Five percent found a better price somewhere else. Well, that's also a good reason. Maybe you can lower your prices, but maybe you can't. Maybe you're at rock bottom already. 9% found a more convenient store. Well, again, there's little you can do about that unless you move your building somewhere else. 14% found have some kind of a personal reason for not liking your store. You can try to fix that problem, but most of the time there's probably nothing you can do about that. It's something personal and it's hard to overcome that. But the biggest Percentage, 68% felt they were treated badly while they're in your store. They, they would, they liked your product, they liked your prices, they liked to keep coming, but someone was rude to them or something like that. Now that's a correctable problem. So what if you have a bad shopping experience? What will you do? Most of the times you'll stop going to that place, but you know what? You'll do something else. You'll tell others about it too. So the one 1155 rule. One person, the original shopper, tells 11 other people about his or her bad experience. And those 11 people tell five other people. So you've got one plus 11 plus 55. You've got now 67 people that have a bad impression of your establishment by one person having a bad experience. So we want. Visitors to our church or any church, any pastor and elders and group would not want someone to come into our assembly and have a bad experience. They they would not want to be told, well, you, you don't look like you fit here. You don't look like our type of people. Why don't you just go sit over there up in the balcony or, or somewhere else? I wouldn't say sit in the back because those that's prime real estate. 
in church. The back rows, really, we would say, come up and sit in the front row. That's where no one wants to sit. All right. So what do we want to do? We want to greet and welcome them. If they are a visitor and they're sitting in your seat, man, do not tell them to get up and move. That's your seat. Sit beside them and make conversation with them. Get to know them. Now, now people certainly want good music and good preaching in the church, but that's not the reason they'll come back. The reason they come back is friendliness. People said hello to them. They were warm to them. They, They welcomed them and invited them back. Friendliness is what brings people back. People want to connect with God and with other people. They want to make friends. And really, smaller groups are the best places to really get connected and make friendships in any church. Right. Life groups, Sunday school class. So there I invite you to try one of those classes. So don't just talk to your old friends. Make some new friends. Speak to new people. Smile often. It takes 42 muscles to frown and 14 to smile. It's much easier to smile. And call people by their name. Find out their name and call them by their name. That's the sweetest sound in their ears. Be friendly. Take a genuine interest in them. Take them to lunch and give the bill to Pastor Charles. (laughs) I'm just kidding about that. They may not return, but it won't be because we're not a friendly place. Okay, let's pray. Lord, thank you for James's very practical lessons for us all. And we all could say, yeah, I'm guilty of that. I've shown partiality and favoritism. My friends, that person doesn't look right. They don't look like me. They don't sound like me or talk like me. Lord, forgive us for that sin as we prepare to take your supper. You're saying to us, you don't have to be perfect to take it, but you have to be forgiven. You have to trust in the blood of Jesus, my son, who was poured out for you. So right now, Lord, let us prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. To confess any sin, the sin of favoritism or something else that's burdening us right now. To just spend some time before we take these elements in thanksgiving for what you've done for us to make our hearts right with you. I said in Jesus name. Amen. So we're going to invite you up if you want to come up the outward outside 